There's two readings. One is Genesis 28, verses 10 to 22, which will be on the screen, but if you want a Bible, there's lots of Bibles at the back as well. So Genesis 28, verses 10 to 22. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Second reading is from the New Testament, from the book of John, uh, chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I've uh, spoken enough to Pete and to Chris and it was lovely to hear before how significant family is for you guys, the, the, the fact that you are part of God's family and together in your missional communities express that uh, by being there for each other. 
um, because I wanted to start this morning by reflecting a little bit on families. Different families do things in different ways, don't they? Have different priorities, uh, different um, things get kind of at the top of the pile in decision making. Uh, sometimes it's the family name, perhaps at the expense of uh, kind of work or kids or which people you associate with. Uh, in my family growing up, it was definitely the, the kids and our happiness was prioritised by my parents at expense of their preferences and uh, the things that they cared about. In fact, at one point, my parents, who are not uh, Christian believers, said that uh, they, they feel like they've lost both sons. We have just me and my brother. They've lost both sons to the church. And they were kind of a bit grumpy about that for a while, but they've sort of... Actually, they, what they prioritise is that we're doing something we consider meaningful, they're happy. It's kids at the top of the pile. And their happiness and kind of sense of what's right in life is further down. Uh, the American comedian Hassan Minaj, I've got a photo of him, uh, he tells a story about um, taking his family to meet his then girlfriend, uh, who's now his wife, for the first time. Um, Hassan's family are Pakistani Muslims and his wife is an Indian Hindu. That's not a small difference, right? That people have kind of died over that difference. Uh, and so he takes his family, they all kind of turn up in the car and turn up on the doorstep. But his dad, apparently, refused to go in. He backed right off and uh, was kind of saying, what will people think? What will people think? We're, we're Muslim and they're not. And I don't even know if I can go into that house. Um, apparently, Hassan's sister kind of gave him a bit of a slap around the ears and they went in and it's sorted, they're married and all good, but different families prioritise different things. They, they function in different ways. And this question is a question that has, I think, particular force when it comes to Christianity. Uh, what about in God's family? What's the priority? What's at the top of the pile? Is God on about himself, his own name and glory and reputation? Or about the good of his children? Maybe you feel the force of this question. Maybe you don't consider yourself a Christian and this is kind of a live one for you. Maybe you're considering, you know, if I become a Christian, am I signing up for something that's going to drain all the energy and joy out of my life? It's all going to be about God and there's not going to be anything left for me. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a while and things are just hard for you right now. Is it worth it? Maybe the question you're asking yourself. The pain, the suffering, the self-denial, the pressure at work or in my family. Maybe it's too much. Maybe, maybe this thing is mostly about God and I'm just supposed to sort of white-knuckle it. You know, and maybe some return in glory. It's worth noticing how this whole kind of question is sort of governed by a logic of scarcity, like scarce resources. A couple of Harvard economists, in fact, wrote a book called Scarcity, Why Having Too Little Means So Much. And they show, they researched and show that uh, having too little of anything, uh, not just money or food, but time, attention, empathy, it actually makes you make worse decisions. It, it demonstrably makes you more foolish and less consistent. I suspect you have probably at least a sense of how this might work. You know, when you lack something, that thing captures your mind and occupies your attention to, to a disproportionate degree. Uh, I lived in, in the UK for a few months uh, with, with 
just my first child at that time and my wife. And uh, it was amazing how much you just, I just had to think about everything. You know, the size of the coins in my pockets. This was kind of before you just tap your card and don't even carry coins. But it's exhausting, right, thinking about the tube stations, the roads, where to find decent coffee, although I found a map online that told me that, so that was all sorted. But otherwise, it was pretty exhausting. Uh, in fact, my son, I think, was totally exhausted. He took shelter in the pram for about 80% of the time. Just didn't even come out. It was too, too much. Uh, far less trivially, a friend of mine, we'll call him Tim, he recently lost his job after a misconduct charge was brought against him. Uh, now, some friends and I think that Tim didn't necessarily handle the situation that well. He didn't necessarily make good decisions or reach out for the help he needed when he needed it. And I suspect that was because of this logic of scarcity. The very charge that was brought against him and the way he was ambushed by it took up so much of his headspace. And he's such a humble and sensitive guy, quick, quick to admit any possible fault on his part, that he actually failed to make the kinds of decisions, the kinds of calls to people who could, could have got in his corner and helped him. It happens all the time, doesn't it? We, when we feel like resources are scarce, when we feel under pressure, we don't make the best decisions. And the same kind of thing can happen in terms of how we frame our relationship with God. We can approach it like a zero-sum game, where it's either his glory and all his glory, or it's our good. We get some of the scraps, maybe, joy, satisfaction, fulfilment. Spoiler alert, God is not into this, right? God's into sufficiency, not scarcity. Abundance, even. God doesn't want to empty your life. He wants to fill it, even if he also wants to remodel it away from our kind of narrow individualistic tendencies and ideas about fullness. So in the passage uh, we heard read before, the passage from Genesis, the story it tells about Jacob and his uncomfortable sleeping arrangements and his kind of out there dream. Uh, and in the way this passage and story points us to Jesus, we actually get some important resources for breaking out of this logic of scarcity when it comes to faith and spirituality and I think by extension all of life. Now I understand you've been uh, working through this part of Genesis recently following on uh, the stories of kind of the, the great grandparents of faith, biblically speaking, Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob. And last week, I believe you spent some time with the story of, of Jacob's youthful deception of his brother, stealing the blessing from their father. Uh, Jacob has been living almost all of his life governed by a logic of scarcity. You see, Jacob was a homebody. He wasn't a hunter and adventurer like his brother. But he's also desperate to get hold of blessing, to win his father's favour and, more importantly, God's favour. And so he kind of colludes with his mother and organises a sneaky way to get it. He tricks his dad and distracts his brother so he can get the blessing. But now, true to the logic of scarcity that governs his life, Jacob makes a sequence of bad decisions. And it leads him to a low point. Uh, this homebody is on the run from his justifiably angry brother. He's in exile in the wilderness. He's lying in the dirt and making do with a rock as his pillow. We've got, a, I think, a picture that captures some of that. 
comfortable, right? Uh, verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. See what's happening here? Things have got so desperate for creature comfort loving Jacob that he's made a rock his pillow. Now, the archaeologists tell us that this wasn't necessarily unusual in the region at the time. They've actually found these, like, rock pillows, right? Not necessarily for the upper classes, mostly for people further down the pile. But sleeping with a head on a rock could kind of protect you, protect your face from animals that might come along or that kind of thing. But not really comfortable, not what Jacob was used to. And while he's sleeping like this, he has this vivid and out there dream. And what he sees in this dream, as well as how he responds to it, which it's not quite a model for us, but he's not entirely off track either. Uh, this dream and what he sees in it and what this dream points us to, actually, gives us some profound resources for breaking out of the debilitating logic of scarcity that can make life and spirituality so hard for many of us. Uh, what it does in particular is it enables us to adopt an expectant stance in relation to God's commitment to us and our goodness, rather than either a stance of entitlement where you think God owes you, he just owes you the good stuff. Either you kind of walk around sort of deluded maybe about what you're going to get, or more likely that entitlement expresses itself in being angry and disappointed with God because he doesn't seem to have showed up and delivered. Or the opposite, actually, is a sense of, I learnt this word this week, ennui. It's French, right? It's nice. It, it, Google tells me, that it means a feeling of listlessness and dissatisfaction arising from a lack of occupation or excitement. You just kind of shrug. Huh. I don't expect anything, actually. And so, so this passage helps us, I think, have, we've got a picture, open hands, expectant, rather than just shrugging and defeated, deflated, or grabbing. Got to get, take it, grab it myself. Okay, but how, right? How, how does what Jacob sees and hears and how he responds resource us to live an expectant spiritual life uh, rather than one governed by the logic of scarcity? Well, there's three ways uh, we see here in the Bible. Uh, first, the encounter is initiated by God in his grace, right? Jacob is asleep. He's not initiating anything. God approaches him when he's vulnerable, far from home, and far from being able to take any sort of action. And in approaching Jacob like this, God demonstrates that he's personal and that whatever follows depends on his personal initiative. God takes the first step. And this can fuel an expectant attitude because when it's not our initiative... We can't be entitled to it, right? God shows Jacob that he's not a principle or a cosmic mechanism that kind of infallibly delivers good once we know how to press the right sequence of buttons. But equally, God shows him that uh, what God shows him about himself cancels out the sort of, can't expect anything. 
because God does initiate. God turns up. He comes and meets Jacob and often us in the wilderness, even at our lowest points. The personal God who meets us in the pages of the Bible is a gracious, initiative-taking, giving and self-giving God. According to Christianity, this is the deepest truth of God. It goes all the way down. God's way of relating to us and his world and his people is one of gift-giving, of giving himself ultimately, of being for us without reserve or reluctance or kind of gritting his teeth and, okay, if, you may, if I must, freely. God is gracious. And maybe worth asking yourself, how do you see God predominantly? As demanding, perhaps? Mostly wanting you to be for him? Or as gracious, as for you, in your corner? I mean, how do you pray to God if you pray? How do you picture God, speak to God? What we glimpse here in the story of Jacob, and we see over and over again in the big story the Bible tells, from creation to new creation, is that God is personal. God's gracious. God takes the initiative, even when it costs him. The second thing we see here in this story is that God acts on his promises. In fact, he reiterates his promises in verses 13 and 14 and applies them specifically to Jacob in verse 15. Have a look. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and through your offspring. That's the promise. God says it again, and then he applies it to Jacob at his lowest point. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Uh, during the week, I read uh, the commentary on this passage by uh, the kind of theologian John Calvin from the 16th century. And, and Calvin kind of writes off what would, at that time was the traditional Jewish reading of this passage. In the traditional Jewish reading, this is all about God providing and caring for his people, being with them in everyday life, because they're Jacob, they're Jacob's descendants. Calvin says, ah, oh, look, no. This is more about God's big promises and big purposes. It's about salvation and God doing things for the world and for his glory. And that can be easy to kind of go, well, it's got to be one or the other. I worked with a Christian leader once who, who was really strong on God wanting us to be for him. It's like God, God wants me to do for him. And he was really sort of not so keen on God doing for us. But you see how that's governed by this logic of scarcity? You know, that as though it's either God's glory or it's 
God's care for and provision and, and being for us. But this is way off, right? It's icky. It depersonalizes God. The promises of God, the grand purposes of God to save and bless and do good for his whole world is not the opposite of his care for his people, for his family, to provide for them and meet them, like what he promises Jacob here. He reiterates the promise and says, and this is why you can trust me to show up for you, to care for you, to act for your good. So God is personal and gracious, and God's promises are the foundation of his care for us. This is why we can be expectant. Uh, the third reason we see in this story for why we can approach God expectantly is in how Jacob responds to what he's seen and heard in his dream. You see there that he sets up the, the rock, the pillow, as a kind of a monument, and he worships God, and then he commits himself. He, dedication is Jacob's response. Verses 16 and 17. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Jacob's totally overwhelmed by what he experienced. He knows that this isn't just the result of eating something a bit funny. He's had an encounter with God. And so he performs an act of worship, of devotion. He sets up that stone, pours oil over it, and calls the place Bethel, which means house of God. And then he commits himself to act, to act with expectation. Uh, verses 20 to 22, Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Now, as I hinted earlier, uh, Jacob is not necessarily a model to imitate 100% here. But he's also not completely off the mark. God's made a concrete commitment to Jacob's good. And so Jacob makes this vow. He enacts his awe and adoration and translates it into a commitment to a course of action where he says, okay, okay, God, you made that promise. You're going to be for me. Well, if you come good, I'll be for you. To the extent that you're on about my good and committed to me, I'm going to be committed to you. Now, it's conditional, right? There's a big fat if there. But he sees that God's commitment to be for him calls for his commitment to be for God. It's not either or. It's both and. Not just in theory, but concretely, including all his stuff. 
Now, I think this commitment of Jacob embodies an attitude of expectation because it reflects the fact that God's blessings are a gift rather than a possession, something he owns or can claim to be entitled to. At the same time, they're a gift, something he willingly receives in awe and worship and then leans into with this vow that he makes, this commitment, rather than just shrugging it off and saying, well, God, that was a nice dream, but I'm not really sure you're able to deliver. Okay, how are you tracking? Uh, How are you going with this talk of God's grace in being for us, his presence and care for us, not just in a generic sense, but personally? You're hearing here this commitment that Jacob makes in response to God, to the extent, to be for God, to the extent that God is for him? Now, one possible reaction that uh, some of you may be having is that you just don't feel this. And perhaps you're in the middle of some especially challenging circumstances and it, it just doesn't feel like God wants good for you. However much you might know in general that God is for his world and has made promises, you feel a kind of gap, right? It's like, the, it's like that picture from the Sistine Chapel. I think I've got a picture further. Yeah. Yes, God wants connection, but there's this gap. It does, I'm not feeling it. It falls short. A very dear friend of mine wrestled with this pretty deeply when he was uh, experiencing depression after his parents divorced. And he was disarmingly clear with me about how, what was going on in his heart during that time. He said, you know, I, I know that God is good. <laughs> I know that God's made promises, that God has said he's for me. I, it's true. I believe it. But there's this gap. I just don't feel it. I don't, I don't know that I can't translate that into my own experience. And perhaps you resonate. And if that's where you find yourself, it, it makes it very hard to develop a kind of expectancy, like I'm saying the Jacob story promotes. Because that gap between you and God with all his blessing and ongoing provision, it can prompt you to sort of grab onto anything you can, right? Any little fleeting wisp, you sort of grab the scraps because you sort of don't really rely that God's going to come through for you. Or maybe you even just shrug and stop opening your hands altogether. Stop asking or expecting anything from God. And either way, the result is that you become functionally self-sufficient. You look to yourself for security and comfort and satisfaction and life rather than looking to God and dedicating yourself to him. Actually, you know, like, I suspect we all find ourselves uh, one way or another functionally in this place, perhaps even more than we like to admit. I certainly do. I'm a classic uh, rule-keeping firstborn child. I kind of wish I had one of those. But uh, I'm all about doing the right things, ticking the boxes, meeting the expectations, because then once I've done it, I feel like I'm owed the rewards. I've been loyal. But I also know that life doesn't always work out like this. And so my default mode, the default mode of my heart, 
especially in pursuing the things that make for comfort and satisfaction, is to get sneaky. Right? I'm much more like Jacob, actually, than I care to admit. I, I doubt I'll get what I need by keeping the rules, so I find ways to go after them myself, ideally without, while without being seen to do so. You know, I'm, a rule, I'm keeping the rules, keeping the rules, and I'm getting some stuff for me because I have to rely on myself. And this certainly applies spiritually in how I relate to God. I, I just very easily give up on praying if the outcome doesn't seem to be delivered or look likely to be delivered. And I turn to my own wiles to get what I feel I need. This particularly happens when it comes to sharing my faith in Christ with people who, who I don't know. And, and I don't know how they're going to react. And so I find all sorts of really, you know, religious-sounding reasons to avoid doing it. Oh, look, I have a sermon to prepare. Can't really get into that conversation right now. I just need to go look after my kids, you know, supporting my wife. It's really spiritual because I'm, like, desperately scared that it's not going to work out, that God's not going to come through, that I can't trust him. I've got to trust myself if I want to be comfortable and safe and satisfied. And so I need to hear this Jacob story, right? And the promise of God's presence and provision and the fact that he's for his people. And I need to hear actually even more what this story points to about how it comes to be fulfilled in Jesus, who, as we heard in that second reading, is Jacob's ladder. He's the connection point. There is no gap. The angels of God are ascending and descending on him. Like he said to Nathaniel, Jesus is the one in whom God himself, the faithful, promise-fulfilling God, the God who appeared to Jacob, came to be with and for his people came to care for us and meet our needs. Our Jesus, you see, is the mediator between heaven and earth. He's God in person, taking the initiative, coming and giving himself, pouring himself out in grace and mercy to fulfill his promises and do us good. In fact, Jesus left the comfort of his heavenly home and he became homeless like Jacob. Even though he came to his own people, his own did not receive him, John's prologue tells us. At one time, Jesus even said of himself that unlike foxes and birds, he had no place to lay his head. And ultimately, after being betrayed, disowned, humiliated, and hung up on a cross in the wilderness outside a city far from home, he was laid on a cold stone in a stranger's tomb. And in doing all this, Jesus went where you and I fear every time we prize our own comfort and satisfaction enough to grab hold of it, whether sneakily or, or by force. He went where you and I deserve to go for our self-sufficiency, 
for our failure to worship and dedicate ourselves to God. He who had every reason to be confident that his father would always be for him cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took on his lips, took to himself the cry that rightly belongs to you and me and to Jacob. And to the extent that you see this, to the extent that you allow it to sink into you, to grip you and lift up your hands so they no longer hang, hang kind of limp, shruggingly by your side, or desperately reaching out to grab every scrap of comfort you can possibly find, to the extent that this gets into you, and you rely upon Jesus as your mediator, the true ladder between the glorious and gracious God of heaven and your circumstances, whatever they are, the more you'll be free from the logic of scarcity that approaches God as though it's either his glory and grand purposes or your good. And you, like me, will be able to stop trying to sneak the comfort and satisfaction we fear God won't or doesn't want to give us. And you begin to feel the sense of connection between the personal God who is so for you, so for you, that he took the initiative in his grace to come at ultimate cost to himself to draw you to him. And you'll be able to open your hands expectantly to this gracious and present God who is totally committed to you. So you'll freely and joyfully, with a heart full of awe and gratitude, commit yourself to him. And delighting in this Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart for his glory and your good. Let me pray. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are uh, the mediator, your God in person, come to us, taking the initiative, wearing the cost of closing that gap, that you left the comfort of your heavenly home, became homeless, disowned, crucified, that you might bring us home. And so we give you the thanks and praise of our hearts and commit ourselves to you, knowing that you're for us, for your good, for your glory and our good, we pray. Amen.